0: I have been given what some would consider um, an ominous task. I have been asked to introduce you to eschatology and to try to paint before you a kind of broad mural of eschatology, to give you the landscape of eschatology in biblical perspective. And my hunch, this is just a hunch, but my hunch is that... Many of you, when you hear the term eschatology, really conjure up nothing specific and concrete in your mind. I I don't know if you're like I was around uh, 15 years ago, just around the time I was converted, but the first time that I encountered the language of eschatology in a theological book I was reading, I ran to the dictionary because I had no idea what was being communicated by that kind of language. And... Um, Now, some of you, however, may, when you hear the language eschatology, something may be conjured up in your minds. What might you think of when you hear the language eschatology? Well, some of you might begin to think immediately about uh, popular novels that have been written in the past decade, Uh, popular novels that ask the question, what would it be like if you were driving down the road and every single person except you immediately disappeared? And you found yourself driving all alone on the highway, strewn with traffic and cars, and it was very scary. Just the beginning of what? The Great Tribulation. You don't want to be left behind, right? That's that's what you might think of. Well, that's one way to think of eschatology. That's a popular way to think of eschatology. Um, But other people um, might not really think of anything in particular. It might be the rapture. It might be events in the Middle East, or it may not be anything really... in in concrete categories. And what I want to do uh, this evening is I want to give you the big picture of eschatology and what I want to do is begin by kind of getting rid of some of the debris, some obstacles that might stand in our way in grasping what the biblical meaning of eschatology is all about. So what I want to do is help you recognize something that uh, may provide an orienting framework for getting a handle on what biblical eschatology is all about. Let me start with two, what I consider to be two misconceptions of eschatology. And you could call it um, two partial truths about eschatology. But they're not really going to be going where we'd like to go tonight. The first one, and you can follow this on your outline, the first one Some try to understand eschatology chronologically, chronologically. Um, Put it a little bit differently, they ask this question, where does eschatology come in the development of history, in the unfolding of history? Now, those of you who are students of the Bible can think, I'm sure, of four basic categories that structure the whole of biblical history, and it's easier than you think. Don't be intimidated. What would those be? What are the four basic categories that cover the whole of the biblical story? Okay, let's call it creation, fall, okay, redemption, yeah, that's an A, consummation, consummation, that's right, consummation, Now, when we think about uh, uh, the history of of God's revelation, we think in terms of four basic categories, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And when many Christian theologians uh, think about eschatology, they, they argue that eschatology has to do not with creation, not with fall, not really even with redemption, but eschatology is bound up with what occurs at the consummation point of history. Eschatology focuses our attention on the end of history or the climax of history. Um, And so it's associated with what happens when the world comes to an end. Put it simply, eschatology is associated with last things. In fact, let me give you a basic definition, and the theologian who gave it is not really relevant it's the definition itself that's important. Listen to this definition. You don't have to, I don't believe it's in your lecture outline, but um, here it is. Eschatology is the doctrine of the last things. Things that would f- happen here at the end of history. The last things pertaining to the individual, death, afterlife, or to the coming course and consummation of Christ's kingdom, or to the world the resurrection and final judgment. Now, what's, what's central when someone speaks of eschatology is, uh, in, the, in those kinds of categories is that when we're talking about the consummation in eschatology, we're really thinking about eschatology in terms of the last things. And the concern is what happens when Jesus returns at the end of history, the dead are raised, the righteous are rewarded, The righteous are blessed and the wicked are punished eternally. And so on this view, eschatology is really uh, something that focuses on the consummation and last things. And when you ask the question, well, how does eschatology relate, if it relates at all, to creation, fall, redemption? Well, if all we're thinking about is eschatology as last things, it doesn't really pertain to those first three categories at all. Now, that's what I'm going to call, at the end of the day, misconception number one. Is that clear so far? Okay. Well, second, and related to this first way, others, and and this will be people who are in the very field where I teach, systematic theology, um, others who are really students of systematic theology, um, speak of eschatology in terms of the place it occupies in a theological system the place it occupies in a theological system. And um, I love asking this question. Even even uh, seminary students are kind of shy when I ask this question. How many of you have read from cover to cover Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology? <laughs> You're so honest. Oh, oh, here we go. We have a Burkhoff fan. Um, that's unique. Well, blessings on you. That's, that's wonderful that you've persevered through that. Uh, there has to be a reward for that somewhere. Um, <laughs> It's about a 700-plus volume. Well, but Burkhoff, the, the point is when Berkhoff organizes the Reformed system of theology, he has certain categories that he uses. And the first category that he has is theology proper, the doctrine of God. The second category he has is anthropology, the doctrine of man and the fall. Third category, third topic, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, The fourth topic, soteriology, the doctrine of the application of redemption. The next topic, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. What comes next? What's the final topic? Eschatology. Eschatology Eschatology is, on this view, also associated with last things, but here's the difference. He's not thinking in terms of the creation, fall, redemption, consummation paradigm that is, the unfolding of revelation in history, he's thinking instead in terms of a theological system. He's thinking of topics that are treated point by point by point in terms of a theological system. And what this view really winds up doing is relegating eschatology to a kind of theological afterthought eschatology is what you treat once you've already treated all of the really important doctrines pertaining to God, man, Christ, sin, salvation, and the church. At the end of the discussion, wrapping it up as a kind of addendum, eschatology is treated. And so, um, rather than being integral or basic to our theology and Christian life, there's, there's uh, the, the implicit... Um, contrary to, I think, Burkhoff's intentions, but there's an, a kind of a message that's sent that eschatology is not integral to everything that we have to say about the Christian life and about Christian theology. And so, on that view, I think there is a kind of truncation of eschatology. In fact, I would argue that eschatology is truncated both on the first view And the second view. On the first view, it's the last things associated with the consummation. On the second view, it's the last things in terms of your theological system. You treat various topics and eschatology is the last one you treat. Well, I think there's something useful about those uh, positions, about those conceptions of eschatology. But I think there's also something deficient about them. And the question I want to ask you is this. How can we begin to correct these misconceptions? How can we begin to look for and formulate a deeper, richer, more biblical, and therefore more adequate view of eschatology? Is there a way to go about doing that? Well, I believe that there is. And without yet defining eschatology for you, let me try to suggest it. Let's start um, with some general considerations about eschatology. And I would say, if I were trying to boil down everything that I want you to grasp in in just a general formulation, it would be something along these lines. Lock, Lock this one away and it might help guide us through the rest of our time together tonight eschatology is not first and foremost about last things, whether we're talking about last things and the consummation or last things as a topic in systematic theology. It's not first and foremost about last things. It's first and foremost about ultimate things. It's first and foremost about ultimate things. Eschatology, in other words is not something we should speak of as an addendum or postscript to theology. It's not what eschatology is about. Instead, it's something that's central to everything God says and does from creation to consummation. And it, therefore, is central to everything we ought to say and do when we're thinking theologically, when we're trying to think biblically. So, on this view... Um, eschatology is something that focuses us more on ultimate things associated with the glorious, heavenly kingdom of God in Christ and not simply last things in history or a theological system. Now, what I want to do, giving you just that general picture, is I want to focus our attention tonight on two things. I want to make this as concrete and clear as possible And I want us to consider two things together, biblically and theologically. I want us to consider the theological and biblical significance of the tree of life found all the way back in the garden in Genesis 2. And I want us also to think about what New Testament authors um, inspired by God have to say about Jesus Christ as the second and last Adam and those will be two lenses through which i believe we're going to have a much richer understanding of eschatology than simply this last things approach and so what i want us to do now is spend a little time thinking about the tree of life and i want you to remember that you this is this is the dictum or the axiom or the little uh, phrase that might summarize what we're saying in terms of this lecture We're going to understand the tree of life in light of the full-orbed revelation that God has given in the Old and New Testaments as it reaches its climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Given that pivotal event in history, we can come to much greater understanding of things like the tree of life. Now, let me just read to you a brief uh, couple of sections from Genesis 2 And then I'm going to tell you what some Reformed theologians have said about the tree of life. And then we're going to consider some more of the Bible. Um, Beginning in Genesis 2, 8 through about 17, we're introduced to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And let me read you that narrative, just portions of it. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Maybe in question and answer time we can talk more about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but right now, focus your attention with me on the tree of life. And I want to tell you, I hope this will sound odd to you, but I'm going to read some comments that some of the great figures in the history of Reformed theology have said about the tree of life. I'm going to read you a quote from Francis Turretin and read you a quote from Gerhardus Voss. And then I want you to reflect on that with me in light of Scripture. I hope it's puzzling at first. That's that's a goal, actually. uh, But listen, listen to this. Francis Turretin, the great 17th century um, Protestant scholastic, um, a consolidator of the Protestant Reformation, says this. The tree of life served as a sacrament and symbol of the immortality which would have been bestowed upon Adam if he had persevered in his first state. With respect to the future life, it was a declarative and sealing sign of the happy life to be passed in paradise and to be changed afterward into a heavenly life if he had continued upright." Now, what Turretin's saying kind of requires us to think in, in terms of a, of a diagram. Turretin's asking us to think of Eden, to think of Eden, hope this isn't too small, and the tree of life, Eden and the tree of life, as something that was earthly. And he's asking us to think of the tree of life being a sign Symbol and eventually sacrament of something that is higher than the earthly life Adam enjoyed in the garden. And the language that Tertullian use, uses, we'll call this heaven, is he says on the one hand, Adam had um, mortality in the garden. And if he obeys God, he will experience what? What will he be given? The gift of immortality I realize that's a little small but bear with me Um, Eden and the tree of life point upward and forward to heaven and immortality and he argues if Adam would have remained upright then this immortality would have given way uh, mortality would have given way to immortality and an earthly life would have given way to a heavenly life now One of your questions might be, I can understand that um, Eden and particularly the tree of life symbolized the mortality that Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden and it pointed him upward and forward to some kind of immortality and heavenly life. But your response to that kind of formulation might be this. I read in Genesis 2 about Adam, the creation of Eve... Genesis 3, I get a serpent who speaks and I read of a tree of life and some rivers in Eden and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Where in the world is this mortality, immortality, earth and heaven coming from? Where in the world do Reformed theologians get off thinking about straightforward narratives in the Old Testament in these sophisticated, diagrammatic ways and using categories that don't even seem to be present? Did you ask that at all? (laughs) Okay, well, I I, I was was trying. Well, let me me try this. Let's look, um, let, let let me just summarize. All Turretin is saying is that this relationship, the tree of life, this line moving up, this line shows an eschatological orientation that is symbolically bound up with Eden and focused in the tree of life. The tree of life is something that orients Adam Upward and forward to a glorious, immortal life in heaven if he obeys. Okay, now, haven't proven it. I'm just telling you what he said for now. Listen to Gerhardus Voss regarding the significance of the tree of life. He says this, and Gerhardus Voss is the father of Reformed biblical theology, and um, his, his presence uh, in terms of the, the way Westminster thinks about theology... Um, is well-nigh ubiquitous. It's really hard to escape from Boss um, in terms of some of the formulations he's given us. And listen to this one. He says this, The tree of life was associated with the higher, the unchangeable, the eternal life to be secured by obedience throughout Adam's time of testing, his probation. After he should have been made sure of the attainment of the highest life The tree would appropriately have been the sacramental means for communicating the highest life. What adjectives does uh, Voss use now? Well, Turretin used mortality and immortality. And uh, Gerhardus Voss now says that when we're thinking about the symbolic significance of the tree of life, it's pointing us and orienting us and Adam to a higher unchangeable, eternal life. In fact, Voss says the highest life, the life of heavenly glory and immortality, that's bound up in the significance and symbolism of the tree of life. He's really, I hope you can see, after um, really almost 300 years or so, he's simply restating a, a staple of Reformed theology about this tree of life. And the question, then, is how do we understand this relationship between the tree of life and the Garden of Eden? The tree of life in the Garden of Eden is symbolizing the fact that Adam's life in Eden was provisional and preparatory of that which is final and consummate. Adam's life, in other words, was oriented towards something greater than Adam himself possessed, where the mortality would give way to the immortality, the perishable would give way to the imperishable, the earthly would give way to the glory of the heavenly. The, the, um, if, you want, if you want one more kind of technical way to speak, the first things of creation, protology, was oriented to the ultimate things of heaven, eschatology. Protology, moving toward eschatology—that—that that sounds, I hope, intriguing to you. But the question is this: What is the biblical and theological pattern of reasoning that substantiates this sort of thinking? How would a Turretin or a Voss or a Reformed theologian reach this sort of conclusion? That's the question. I want us to focus on because it takes us to the biblical line of argument that I want us to consider that will help us get this fuller picture of eschatology. Let me give you the fundamental biblical argument for this conclusion, and then I'm going to illustrate it a couple of times. And again, I could appeal to Gerhardus Voss, but I'm just going to condense it. The point that Voss and other Reformed theologians make is that this imagery of the tree of life that you find in Genesis nine, this imagery reappears at the end of history in the book of Revelation in a consummate and glorious context, a heavenly context, where Jesus has been raised and glorified and shows us that this tree of life imagery in Eden actually finds its fulfillment in a consummate, glorious, heavenly context. And it does so because Jesus has been crucified and raised. And he brings what is symbolically present in the tree of life to its heavenly climax and conclusion. Jesus obtains that immortality and higher life and heavenly life that was promised to Adam. Let me give you a few um, texts in the New Testament. Listen to Revelation 2.7. In Revelation 2.7, Jesus speaks um, to his church, the church in Ephesus, and he tells the church... That it has many good things that it's done. It's persevered, endured hardship, has not grown weary. And he says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent. And then he makes this promise to the church. And listen to this language. He says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, notice the context in terms of which this statement is made. This statement occurs in the context of Christ's glorious ascension into heaven and His present session enthroned in the heavenly arena, Christ appears to John as the risen and glorified King of the new creation, as the Alpha and Omega, as the firstborn over God's creation. And John describes him in this language His hair is white like wool, his eyes are like flames of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice is like the sound of many rushing waters and His face like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You see, Christ has been clothed with the effulgence and the glory and the luminosity that's associated with heaven itself. He has been transformed by His resurrection and by His ascension into heaven. There's a a radiant light and glorious luminosity that surrounds the ascended Christ. And it's in this context, you see, that Jesus promises the overcomer that if you do overcome you to you, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life that is located where? In the paradise of God. And what can we say about this paradise and about, therefore, the significance of this tree of life. Do you remember when Jesus is crucified and the thief asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom? What does Jesus say to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Not in an earthly uh, region somewhere located in the general area of, of, of Canaan, Tigris-Euphrates area, something like that. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about opening the very gates of heaven for his people by his death and in light of his resurrection. The paradise of God is synonymous with the, un, with the created and invisible heavenly realm in which the Lord God himself is enthroned as the king of creation. And when Jesus tells his church that those who overcome, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, he is taking an Old Testament symbol, the tree of life, and he is saying, given my death and resurrection, it has been charged with new realized eschatological significance. I am now the one who gives the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. See, notice the language. He doesn't say that the church eats of that now. What does he say? I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. The tree of life is a future reality for the believer who at the time point of overcoming even unto death enters what? the paradise of God. And so Jesus is saying to his church, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat of that which is associated with the immortality of everlasting, abiding, imperishable, heavenly life, resurrection life, the same kind of life that Christ himself enjoys and um, experiences as resurrected and as ascended. But you see, that's not all that the book of Revelation has to say about the significance of the tree of life. Look at Revelation 22, uh, verses 1 through 3. "'The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city.'" On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Do you see what happens? That um, separation of visible and invisible dimensions of reality gives way to a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and new earth that descends out of heaven. And in this context where there is no curse, the tree of life reaches its ultimate symbolic significance. It bears its fruit every month to now present, and it yields its fruit, bears its fruit for the healing of the nations where there will no longer be any curse. You see, this is a future, um, this is a prophetic description of the end of history, the consummation of the kingdom of God, where the people of God enjoy the fullness of what was only symbolically promised in the tree of life. And they do so because the Lamb has given them life. The tree of life symbolism appears in a context where there's no curse, it is a fuller revelation of what it means to be in the paradise of God. It's a fuller, more saturated visual picture of the glories of heaven itself. No longer cryptically spoken of in terms of the tree of life and the paradise of God, but now disclosed in the fullness of its glory. And so you see, um, in the language of Gerhardus Voss, this piece of symbolism reappears, this is a quote from Voss, in eschatological form at the end of history, showing us what the original goal of the tree of life involved for Adam from the very beginning. And so do you see how if if that sort of relationship is what we have in mind when we're talking about eschatology, do you see how Adam was placed in the garden and eschatological realities, matters of ultimate things were placed before him symbolically in terms of the tree of life. So that if you, if you understand eschatology on this level, do you see how impoverished it is to talk about only something that occurs at the end of history, last things, And how, perhaps even worse, it's impoverishing to talk about eschatology as last things in your theological textbook. You see, it's built into the very structure of created reality. And it comes to its high point or its climax because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that is one way to think about eschatology in terms of Eden and the symbolic significance of the tree of life. Now that could be, I hope it's not. I hope it resonates with you as being something deeply biblical. But what I want to do for the last few minutes is talk to you not only about the symbolic significance of the tree of life, but I want you to think with me about the language that's used in the New Testament regarding Jesus as the last Adam, Jesus as the second Adam. And um, what I want to do is first just talk to you briefly about Luke 4, 1 through 13, and I want you to think with me, because this might strike you as something you haven't thought a lot about. Now, this might not be the topic you walk around thinking about much at all, so that's why we have a series on it, to to, to try to clarify our thinking. But I want you to notice, when we're looking at Luke 4, 1 through 13, I want to explain something about the context that I still find incredibly fascinating. And it's this, that the probation and temptation of Jesus by the serpent, by Satan himself, um, occurs in a context that I believe draws strong literary connections between Jesus and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And here's what it is. Remember in Luke 3.21, beginning around in there, Jesus is baptized, and what voice, what words does he hear from heaven? Upon his baptism. This is my son son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And what does he see? He sees the spirit descending in avian form, dove-like form, (laughs) and resting upon him. And so it's a public authentication that this is the son of God. This is Messiah audibly and visually authenticated by the Father and the Spirit. And then Luke begins immediately after that with a genealogy, and here's what's so significant about this genealogy. How does Luke begin that genealogy? He begins in Jesus' own contemporary experience, uh, alleged, alleged to be the son of Joseph, which we know is not true because of the... Um, Uh, Immaculate Conception because of the virgin birth. But alleged to be the son of Joseph and the, the genealogy traces Jesus' descent back past David, back past Abraham, back all the way past Noah to whom? To Adam. And how is Adam described in Genesis 3.38? Adam, the son of? The son of God. What Luke does in terms of this literary artistry, in terms of this inversion of the order of the genealogies, is he places as clearly as possible Adam as a son of God over against Jesus as the son of God. And it's a literary way of saying to those who were waiting for the seed of the woman to come and crush the serpent's head, it's a literary way of Luke saying, he's here, One greater than Adam, a son greater than Adam, has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And is it not a coincidence, it is not, that Jesus begins his ministry, in this context, doing what? In a probation, face to face with whom? Satan who tempted Adam upon, really, in terms of the narrative, when he was created. No sooner does the narrative tell us Adam was created and placed in the garden than he is tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent. And Jesus begins his temptation and probation in the very context of the curse, which was inaugurated by what act? The rebellion of Adam. And it's in this context that the serpent says three times, if you are the Son of God, or a variation of it, then Tell this stone to become bread, bow and worship me, or show yourself to be the Son of God by jumping from the temple. And what does Jesus say each time? It is written, it is written, and it says. And he appeals to the Word of God. By his obedience, doing what the first Adam failed to do. Each time overcoming the curse and its consequences by standing in resolute obedience and subordination to his father's will and word. And it's in that context, remember in Luke 4.13, that um, Luke tells us that Satan left him until an opportune time. And when do we hear of another time in the book of Luke where someone says, if you are the son of God or the king of the Jews, save yourself. On the cross, the last climactic moment when Jesus is tempted by Satan, tempted as a second Adam, as the true Son of God, doing what the first Son of God, the first Adam, failed to do. It is in that context that Jesus suffers to the point of death. And just before he dies, what does Luke record? The thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? What does Jesus say? in paradise do you now know more why jesus said that as the second and true adam and son of god he opens the gates of not an earthly eden an earthly paradise but a glorious heavenly paradise for his people that's a gospel witness to this another witness to this 1st corinthians 15 1st corinthians 15 in 1 Corinthians 15.45, um, Paul refers to Adam explicitly, uh, for those of you who uh, flirt, flirt with the Greek, as the eschatos, Adam, the last Adam. Eschatos being the root from which we get what? Eschatology. Jesus is, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.45, as resurrected, the um, last Adam. Um, In in verse 47, he is the second man, the second Adam. He's the second and last Adam. And as resurrected, uh, recognize this, as the resurrected one, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. What has occurred in the life experience of Jesus, bodily resurrection unto glory, is the prototype or first fruits of what will occur to every, with regard to every single believer who trusts in Jesus. And how does Paul describe the nature of the resurrected body? Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, just earlier, in verse 42 and 43, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised how? Which category does that fit? the eschatological, the immortal, the imperishable. The body is sown also in dishonor. It is raised in what? Glory. Glory. The body is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And so you see what Paul is saying is that in his resurrection from the dead, Christ comes to possess as the second Adam resurrection life eschatological life life that is imperishable life that is glorious life that is powerful life that is immortal life that is eternal in character he comes to possess the very thing that was in place for Adam had Adam continued upright had Adam continued in obedience and Paul goes on to say in verse 47 the first man was of the dust of the what earth The second man is what? Of heaven. You see? As second and last Adam, Jesus possesses this heavenly, glorious, imperishable resurrection life. And to say that is simply to say that Jesus possesses in himself the very embodiment of eschatology. And Paul goes on to say that Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But in a moment, we will be changed and the dead will be raised how? Imperishable. There will be, in a sense, a kind of replication of the resurrection life that Christ now possesses in the believer when the believer is raised. Christ was raised imperishable and in glory. The believer will be raised imperishable and in glory. And that is resurrection theology. That is bringing through the lens now not so much of the tree of life, but the second Adam motif. That's bringing eschatology to focus in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's something even better that I, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you about First um, Peter. In First Peter one, verses three and four, Peter says this in doxology. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that cannot not what? Perish. perish, spoil or fade, reserved where for you. in heaven. Do you see what Peter is saying in light of what we've just covered? Peter is saying that by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you have been born again and you have become a participant in an order, in a possessor of an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, that is reserved in heaven for you. And that is why Paul says elsewhere that you have been crucified and raised with Christ. You have become a possessor of the kingdom of light and life. You've become a possessor of resurrection life in the Spirit because you have been united to the crucified, resurrected, and glorified second and last Adam. And so when we think about eschatology, I think and I, I believe this will cohere well with the next lecture, I think that we need to recognize that at its core, the very gospel itself is eschatological because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is eschatological. Whether we're thinking in terms of the symbolic and sacramental significance of the tree of life or whether we're looking at the implications of Jesus as second and last Adam, the focus of the gospel, the focus of the Bible, is on the eschatological glory forfeited by Adam and obtained by Christ in his death and resurrection. And what that means, I believe, is this, that if you want the big picture of eschatology, if you want it succinctly summarized, then you need to understand the death and resurrection, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the second and last Adam, who is both the possessor and conveyor of eschatological life, who brings the ultimate things of heaven and glory and immortality and life to his people by virtue of union with him. And see, if we look at it that way, I think we're able to understand eschatology in terms of a much bigger picture, a much more adequate picture than simply eschatology as last things in a theological system or last things in the chronology of history. And I really think we're able to bring together our understanding of the person and work of Christ the essence of the gospel and eschatology and have a much more fully-orbed conception of eschatology. Now, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I was supposed to stop at 8.30. Am I correct? And um, I, I am stopping now, but what I think it's time to do is uh, open it up for some questions and answers. I'm sure... There are no questions. No questions tonight? Is it everyone everyone ready to go home? Reminds you of your cards, put cards on your desk. And, you can... and remember this, as you're preparing to, to write questions, um, and I know you've heard this and it's kind of a cliche, but any question that you have is fair game. I can't promise that I'll be able to answer your question, but if you have a question whether it's a burning question, a nagging question, or a not-so-burning and not-so-nagging question, I'm here to try to help. So please feel free to uh, either write one down or raise your hand, and we'll try to we'll try to field it. In fact, I don't want to... Yeah, that's a good question. Here, here's the question, just put in a nutshell... Um, what is the difference between a Christian eschatology and, say, an Islamic uh, Muslim conception of eschatology, and does it inform all of life? Well, let me, let me take a little swipe at it and just admit I'm not really an expert in Islamic es- eschatology. I've, I've spent more time on the Christian side. <laughs> um, but that being said, the point is made, and I, wanna, I, I think this is important to underscore, eschatology is something that does have decisive bearing on your Christian walk. Eschatology, or a broader philosophy of history, is something that immediately and directly impacts every area of your life. If you think of eschatology as um, something that's associated wholly with future concerns, it changes the way you think about the present. If you think about eschatology that has um, only... Um, concerns that focus on the Middle East, it changes the way you think about the Middle East and by implication the United States and other places in the, in the world. If you think about eschatology simply as an addendum um, to your systematic theology, it changes the way you think about eschatology in relationship to other things. And I think that is a, a point that's worth Worth uh, emphasizing, eschatology is probably, I would say, one of the most practical doctrines that you're ever going to find because it encompasses everything you believe about history, and especially if you take a broad, more redemptive historical view of eschatology, it encompasses everything you can think of from creation and runs through fall, redemption, and consummation. Now, um, Islamic um, eschatology, I I would just say there. The, you know how we talked at the end about an already that we participate in the imperishable resurrection life of the kingdom, but there is nonetheless a not yet to um, our eschatology. That's, that's one thing that distinguishes as far as I understand uh, Christian and Islamic conceptions of eschatology. Uh, the other is that there is a very worldly, um, ca- carnal or... Um, um, Kind of fleshly conception of the rewards that are given in terms of eschatology uh, pertaining to um, numbers of women in terms of a harem and things like that that would be radically distinct from from Christian eschatology and I think there is um, and, and I think that uh, there 's also um, really no notion of propitiatory sacrifice and redemption that 's bound up with eschatology in terms of an Islamic perspective. And that's really where Christianity, on one level, if you, if you caught, I know it went quickly. But if we're thinking about eschatology, what can, from what can we not separate eschatology? Christ. And so that's, that's very broad strokes, but just a shot. And, and others could do a better job um, in doing that. Now, I did get a question here. Let me, let me read this, and then we'll get... we'll go ahead. That's, that's great. I'm actually glad it doesn't on one level. Uh, that's strange to say, someone trying to teach it. But uh, the, the question is this, and see if I'm getting at the, at the heart of it. The question is this, well, I can understand the second Adam being raised, possessing eschatological life, bringing the kingdom of God to its consummation point, opening the gates of paradise for the people of God, and receiving in his resurrection um, glory, power, and immortality, and, and so on. But what... I'm still wrestling with, with the significance of this um, tree of life in the garden. Okay. Oh, and now we're shifting a uh, focus. Isn't Christ the tree of life? Turton actually says Jesus by his death and resurrection becomes the very reality symbolically presented by the tree of life. Let me try to hit two questions that you ask. The first one uh, pertains to well, how do we get at our understanding of what's bound up in the tree of life? How much did Adam understand? The question of how much Adam understood is going to be enshrouded ultimately to a high degree in mystery. Um, That that being said, I think we want to recognize that the, the way we read the Bible is we read it in terms of its historical, organic, supernatural unfolding in history. And we come to greater and greater understanding of the Old Testament only in light of what? the New Testament, St. Augustine. The old is really, in a sense, um, is is concealed when it's seen in contrast or relationship to the new. Uh, The author of Hebrews often talks about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant mosaic order, even later than Adam, being shadow, being encased in shadow, as it were, clear enough for the people in the Old Testament to understand the need for blood atonement, clear enough for them to understand um, that uh, heaven was their ultimate home and so on, but really paling in, in comparison to the clarity of understanding that we possess this side of the resurrection. So, but but the, the question I think you're getting at, and I don't know if this is going to help, is that what, the tree, what we can say about the tree of life in light of the way Jesus alludes to it in um, Revelation 2 and 22, is that regardless what detailed type of understanding Adam may have had, objectively speaking, in terms of God's intention and design, this was a sign, symbol, sacrament, pointer to a greater heavenly reality. The degree to which Adam would understand that, I would liken to the development from a kind of um, um, almost embryo to a growing child, something like that. And at one point, Adam would be around the growing child level in terms of understanding the eschatological significance of what he was face to face with with the uh, the Lord of the Covenant, but. In terms of the, the detail and depth and fullness of understanding, I would, I would say he would lack it. But the, the point is, even if we can't really get clear on Adam's psychology, we can get clear about the divine intention and objective covenant historical significance of this piece of symbolism, especially given the way it's treated and interpreted in later portions of the Bible and also some of the material we looked at on the second Adam. Now, that's a, there are other ways to try to answer that question. It's a, it's a good one. No, oh, that's a great question. What if Adam had continued upright? This, this is the, the old um, you know, question about the, 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 the counterfactual. You know? Adam didn't continue upright, but what if he had? Well, the, the, the short of it is that if Adam had continued upright... He would have eaten from the tree of life and been confirmed in eschatological glory the way Jesus was at the time point of his resurrection. The whole reason, this one's very important to remember, the whole reason for the incarnation of Jesus Christ is redemptive, period. There would be no need for an incarnation and redemption if Adam had continued upright. So had he continued upright... The um, mortal would have inherited the immortal. The perishable, the imperishable. The one who was subject to change would have been confirmed in righteousness. Oh, um, no, not because he was going to fall. Um, What you're raising, and I don't want to confuse anyone, what you're raising is a question um, in how we relate the eternal decrees of God to the historical situation in the garden. And just because God per- decreed to permit the fall, we don't want to evacuate the genuine historical significance of the tree of life. It wasn't placed there as a kind of, um, on one level, oh, he's going to fall and this will come in helpful later when we're explaining the eschat. No, that's not what you're saying. I'm, I don't mean that to, be, to sound... Yeah. Uh, but, but rather, it is presented as, an, as a, a legitimate put it this way, as a well-meant offer of consummate glory on the condition of obedience. Even though, and here's mystery, and this is for our 201 course later, <laughs> um, even though God had in fact not decreed that Adam would obey, he nonetheless gives a well-meant offer of eschatological glory to Adam on the condition of obedience. And that takes us to one of those um, more difficult levels of theology in how you relate the eternal decree to legitimate, well-meant offers in history that um, are not decreed. So, good question. Let, let me try this one quickly. Okay, how much does eschatology include God's judgment? Uh, think of the bowls and trumpets of the book of Revelation. Hmm. Let me try to put it this way. How much does eschatology include God's judgment? Well, when Adam was placed before the um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil... I like to put it this way. He was face to face with the dual sanctions of blessing or cursing. If Adam continued upright in the face of temptation and refrained from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and stretched forth his hand to eat from the tree of life upon divine sanction, he would, in fact, be blessed. But if Adam failed to think God's thoughts after him in the Garden of Eden, The the tree of life, that probation tree, would become the means by which he comes face to face, not with ultimate things of blessing, but with ultimate things of cursing. And so eschatology, really, this notion of eschatology, um, has built into it dual sanctions um, of blessing and cursing, what you call eschatological sanctions of weal, blessing, and woe. Cursing, And so I think um, just as almost everything else that we can say about what God does in history, eschatology is built right into it. That's a good question. And that explains the reason why um, those who do not find faith, do not come to faith in Christ, stand before God as condemned in the first Adam. Because you stand related to God in terms of one of two federal heads. Either the first Adam through whom came death and condemnation, or you stand related to God through the second Adam, through whom comes life and justification. There's no third class. There's no third group, Um, two groups. And that's why Westminster is very concerned about things like missions and preaching Christ and seeing the gospel preached because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and the Word of God says that there is one mediator between God and man There is one person historically who has borne the judgment of God, infinitely exhausted it in his person and in his suffering, and three days later was raised triumphantly and declared with power to be the Son of God in his resurrection from the dead. And that is Jesus Christ alone. Is the fact that, that Christ was crucified on a tree in any way tied to the tree of life. I've been asked that question, believe it or not, someone's asked me that question before. Go figure that. Um, but it's a very good question. And I think the best way that I have heard the connection uh, made is, is this way. And, and by the way, the short answer is, I don't believe so. But, but here, here's why. The curse in the uh, Mosaic economy, cursed is the one who is hung on a tree, suspended from heaven and suspended from earth, and the object, the one who is in in some sense isolated from both arenas, and the subject of of judgment and curse, I think that is the better redemptive historical um, context for speaking of the tree of woe, the tree of cursing, than the tree of life. The other reason why I think it's not appropriate to talk about that being bound up with the tree of life is this. and, and if this isn't clear, please make sure that I make it clear. Um, if G, the, the, the death of Christ, if, if all we have is the death of Christ, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 12? There you go. So on one, in one sense, it is in his resurrection from the dead that Christ becomes not isolated from his death, But by his death and then resurrection, that Christ becomes the life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. That he becomes the possessor and conveyor of eschatological life. That the symbolism bound up in the tree of life comes to its climax in redemptive history. And so never um, recognize, do recognize that Jesus in his death satisfies the wrath of God, takes away our sin, redeems us. Um, reconciles us to God, but always recognize that the death of Jesus is organically connected to his resurrection and has no efficacy apart from it. It's, it's, a, it's an organic unity, death and resurrection. Okay, I'll stop. That's a good, very good question. Some others? Um, I'm not as tired as I thought I'd be. It's about a... Uh, this is great. Right. Okay, two questions. One, many people think that eschatology has to do with things that are happening in Israel today, and reformed theology um, we get the sense which is correct but by and large, reformed theology does not and then secondly, how are we to interact with people who don't see things exactly the way we see them well let me let me try to answer the question in in this way when um, when Matthew, in Matthew 3.15, speaks of Jesus. He alludes to Hosea 11.1. 1. What does Hosea 11.1 1 say about Israel in the Old Testament? Out of Egypt I called my son. How does Luke use Hosea 11.1 1 in Matthew 3.15 when he's speaking of Jesus? Out of Israel I called my son. Um, when Paul talks about the Israel of God in um, Galatians 6.14, when he speaks of the church as the circumcised, when he addresses Roman Christians uh, in Romans 2.29 as those who have been circumcised, not with the circumcision made by hands, but by the circumcision affected by the Spirit, what is, what is happening? Israel is being redefined in Christological categories. Jesus is the new and true Israel, and by his life, death, and resurrection, reconstitutes and redefines what it means to be the Israel of God. So what this view does for us, I think, in the way we interact with people, and that's a very brief... There's, there's more to be said, but that's, that's a very brief way of, of getting at it. Uh, what this does in the way we interact with people is it ought to breed a real sense of of humility, and it ought to also bring about a real Christ-centeredness to the way that we speak to people who disagree with us. It's not about winning a debate when you're talking eschatology, when you're talking about events in the Middle East. It's about being faithful to the biblical witness that Jesus is not only the second and last Adam, but He is, in His own person, the new and true Israel. In that Luke 4 narrative we were looking at, Jesus consistently quotes from the Shema. He consistently quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, where Israel failed in the wilderness and did not live by every word that came from the mouth of God. What did Jesus do? He did it. See, Jesus is not only fulfilling what Adam failed to do, he's fulfilling what Israel failed to do. And he's doing it in order to reconstitute and redefine Israel according to his own person and work. And and I think it should help us, ideally, to to deal um, gently, to deal humbly with people, to help them try to think in categories that are more, I hate to put it this way, more biblical and less American on, on, on one point, because these, these sorts of uh, you know, dispensational theologies that see eschatology as bound up with events in the Middle East, those things are, um, on one level, a lot more American than they are um, really biblical in terms of some of these deep structures we've looked at tonight, for instance. If you recognize eschatology as something that's bound up with the kingdom before the fall, um, surely you have to say that what Jesus has done has some impact on eschatology and it 's a lot bigger than the Middle East, um, but there are a lot of other questions bound up in what you 're saying That'd be, that that's a, I think that might get treated. Let me put a plug for what the third or fourth one the, th- last, lecture. the last lecture all of those questions are going to be answered once for all no uh, last last um, lecture series you 'll get to look at um, typology and the land of Canaan and the tabernacle and um, dispensationalism and consider um, those views, that view, in light of some, some biblical categories. Good question. Sure. Um, l- let, me, let me try to put it this way. The, when the author of Hebrews speaks, um, remember Jesus talks about the tree of life in the paradise of God being a holy future reality for the church. And he describes further how um, the new heavens and the new earth Um, are revealed in the fullness of glory and splendor for the people of God. Testing, trial, perseverance, and hardship ceases when the church um, corporately eats from the tree of life in the paradise of God and enters into a new heavens and new earth. The book of Hebrews picks up on a very similar theme in Hebrews 3.7 through 4.11. And in that view... We're not talking in terms of paradise of God and tree of life or new heavens and new earth. We're talking about Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest that is held forth for the people of God is a future, eternal, eschatological reality. Hebrews 4, 2 through 6 makes that very clear. The prospect of the church at the end of this age is to enter into the heavenly Sabbath rest that God himself has enjoyed from the creation of the world. In the interim and in the meantime, the author of Hebrews describes the church as a pilgrim people, as a wilderness community. And the best analogy for that is the time between the exodus from Egypt and entrance into the land of Canaan. And what was that like for the people of Israel in the Old Covenant? It was a time of wilderness testing it was a time of hardship it was a time of trial it was a time of grumbling Uh, thousands fell in the wilderness because of disobedience some did not even enter the land they were hard pressed on every side and in every way and there's something i think that is paradigmatic that should frame our understanding of the christian life we are presently united to christ And Paul says, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But in this earth and on this earth, we are at the same time pilgrims. Peter says, aliens and strangers in this present world. And we need to recognize that the the essence of the Christian life can be summed up in something like this We suffer with Christ and like Christ unto the glory of Sabbath rest unto the glory of the paradise of God all the time finding comfort in our union with Christ but being essentially in this world pilgrims and strangers and aliens who forego rights who return good for evil who pray for their enemies who return um, curse with blessing and who model the redemptive love and grace of Jesus Christ as strangers and as aliens who are simultaneously citizens of heaven and raised with Christ. And so this has really, um, this keeps you from that mentality of trying to to reclaim America or um, reclaim something that ought to be um, recognized by all as belonging to Jesus Christ. You're pilgrims and strangers. And I think it produces a real humility and Christ-likeness as you live the Christian life. And it is a direct function of our understanding of eschatology, I, I think. Sure. The question is, do you know, can you tell me the date when purgatory came into the picture? I can't tell you the date. Um, I'm going to... I'm, I know it is going to be... This is when I wish for our church historians um, to be here, to, to bail the systematicians out. I, I'm going to say... I know we're dealing with um, medieval period. I'm, I just can't give you a specific date and a specific person on purgatory. Does someone know? Um, oh, that, that's like the theological source or something like that, yeah. Um, that's a good question. Sorry, like I said, if I can answer it, I'll give it my best shot. Um, yes, ma'am? That's fine with me. I think we've, I think we've about run our course.